Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. We're going to look at the book of Colossians. That's a, a book that I've been studying, and that's a book that we have been uh, going through with the Spanish group. And, and we're going to go over one of, my, uh, one of the, my favorite passages in the book. I think the book of Colossians is one of my favorite books, but we're also going to uh, talk about one of my favorite passages. So it's uh, Colossians chapter 1, starting in, in verse 13. Let's pray one more time. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have uh, revealed your will and your wisdom and your understanding. What you wanted us to understand, Lord, you have revealed it in your word. Thank you that your word is truth. Thank you that we can trust what you have left written for us. Thank you that we have everything that we need for life and godliness. Thank you that your Holy Spirit, the one who inspired your word, is the one instructing us, is the one giving us uh, the understanding that we need. And Lord, I pray that as we look into this passage, we would be um, amazed at your son Jesus, at his glory, at who he is, at what he has done for us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in me and the things that I say and at work in all of us. As we listen to your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us of our sin, of the areas in which we're failing, and that would also uh, bring uh, new light and new awe of the beauty of your gospel, the beauty of your salvation and your work for us. We pray that um, you would be the one leading this time, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you, uh, if you listen to a preacher uh, often enough, you will find that this preacher will have a favorite or, uh, uh, or a few favorite verses that they like to quote from. So, for example, if you, uh, if you remember hearing Nathan's preaching, he had a few, but I think one of the ones that comes to mind is, I, I think it was uh, Habakkuk, and he quoted that the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the, as the waters cover the sea. And I know that Jordan has not preached as often, but I don't know if you've noticed that he likes to quote from the end of Revelation. Uh, that's right. And so if you have listened to my preaching, you probably know that one of my favorite verses to quote is, uh, Colossians 1, uh, 13, uh, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And uh, this is, you know, obviously this is one of my favorite verses. And I just wanted to, uh, I wanted us to look into the, the context of this verse, the, the, the following context of this verse. And so... Let's, um, let's read these verses. Remember, well, not remember, because I haven't told you, but Colossians is a letter that, wrote, that Paul wrote to the church in, in Colossae. And it is very likely that Paul never met 
this church. He was writing from jail, and he is writing of the things that he heard about them. He heard a report about this church, and he was very uh, thankful and very glad because this church had heard the gospel, and the reputation of this church was so evident and so well-known that it made it all the way to where he was in jail. And so he writes this letter to them to encourage them and to teach them and to uh, uh, exhort them and, and just everything that Paul does in his letters. And so uh, the first section of the letter is a prayer or is in the form of a prayer where Paul says, I thank God for you and I thank God for how the gospel has reached you. Uh, but as it is often the case with Paul, sometimes when he starts talking about something or someone, he will take a long, uh, what seems like a parenthesis, to then expound on that something or someone. And so this is what happens here in, in uh, verses 13 through 23. He is talking about the Father. He is talking about how, how the Father has transferred us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus. and then. The next following verses are Paul expounding on the person of Jesus. So let's look at those verses, starting in verse 13. And I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word, if you are able. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we, are, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven of which I all became a minister. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So I want us to focus uh, on verses 15 through 23. And as you saw, this is, this is an, an ode to Jesus. This is an, an explanation of who Jesus is. And this is, uh, seems to be a poetic way of describing him. In fact, many, uh, many scholars and, and common, uh, some of the commentaries say that this was probably a song, like an early church song. That Paul is quoting. Some people say maybe he adjusted it. But the thing is, this is an ode to Jesus. This is uh, Paul really explaining who Jesus is. And the point, or one of the points here, 
is that we would look at him and that we would be amazed, that we would worship him for who he is. And I think this is important uh, because if you are familiar with uh, any cult, one of the things that is uh, very common to many cults is that they do not accept the divinity of Jesus. That's one of the main things that, that will distinguish a true believer from a non-believer, that they will always alter the divinity of Jesus. So if you talk to a Mormon, if you talk to a Jehovah Witness, if you talk to someone from the light of the world, that's a, that's a cult in Mexico, um, usually the case will be, well, you know, we believe that uh, Jesus is some sort of God, maybe a, like a lesser God, but not quite up there with the Father. That's usually what you will hear from any cult. And so after reading this passage and after uh, uh, digging into this passage, my hope is that there would be no question whatsoever about the identity of Jesus, about who he is, and really no question about the fact that he is God and about what he has done for us. So he's talking about Jesus. He's saying that in, in verse 14, he says, in whom, in, in, in Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he goes on to describe him. He, talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It, is, it was very well known, and it is well known in, in Jewish culture and in Christianity that God is invisible, that God is a spirit, right? John says it in, in, in Job, John chapter 1, verse 18. Um, John says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So John right there is saying what basically everyone, every Jew has believed for years and years, that no one has seen God. God is invisible. He is the Spirit. But Jesus is the one that makes God visible. Remember what Jesus told his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is claiming to be the image of God. And then... Um, Paul says he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, some, uh, maybe a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness or someone will say, hey, I gotcha. You said that Jesus is, is God and he is eternal and all of that. But right here it says that he is the, the firstborn of all creation. Doesn't that mean that he was created? And that's what a lot of uh, people in cults believe. They believe that Jesus was created. Some people would say, well, maybe he was the first one to be created, and then he became a god. But I think that's a poor understanding of uh, the Greek language because the word firstborn doesn't always mean uh, chronological order of being born. A lot of the times the word firstborn only is talking about someone's position. And so if you remember in, in uh, Old Testament tradition, in Jewish tradition, uh, the firstborn was the one that would inherit all of the father's estate. And so that always puzzled me growing up because I'm, I'm a second child. And that always puzzled me like, hmm. So if we lived in that culture, does that mean that I wouldn't get anything from my parents? And 
that was often the case. No, my, my older brother would have gotten the whole inheritance. Thankfully, we're not in those times. Um, but basically what this passage is saying, what Paul is trying to say in that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation is not that he was the first one to be created, but rather that he is the heir of all of God's creation. In other words, if Jesus is the son, if, God, if, if the father is the, the owner of all of creation, Jesus is the rightful heir of that creation. He is the ruler of everything that belongs to the father. Now, if that is not clear enough, he will explain in verse 16, for by him, all things were created. If he were created, then how could Paul say that all things were created by Jesus, right? And, and John says something similar. Again, in John, in John chapter 1, he says in verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. I think he is, it, John there is at pains trying to show that nothing that was made could have been made without Jesus. And so if nothing that was made could have been made without Jesus, how could Jesus be a creature, right? He is eternal. He has been there from the beginning. So by him, all things were created. Now, which things? He says, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So it is through Jesus, it is by the work of Jesus that all of the things in the universe were created. Not only the things that we can see, that we can touch, not only the physical things here in this world, but everything. The spiritual beings, the angelic beings, if there's life in other planets, which I personally don't believe there is life in other planets, but even if there were life in other planets, Jesus would have created them. God, Jesus, the Son of God, is the creator of all things, the things that are visible and invisible, the things that are angelic and human. He is the creator of all things. Now, notice that all things were created through him and for him. So through him, we already, we already explore that, right? He is the, the agent of God's creation. Everything was created by his power. But we haven't really explored the other preposition. They were created for him. And this is really important for us to remember Everything in this world, everything in this universe, every single thing that exists was created for Christ. It was created for his glory and for his purpose. Everything. One, of, one verse that uh, every time I read it, it always not necessarily puzzles me, but, but I don't know. It just makes me think. It's a, it's an interesting verse. It's Proverbs 16, uh, 4. That says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So God has made everything, even the wicked person, even the, the, the things that we might be like, wow, like why did God create that? Or why did God allow those things to happen? 
Well, God has made everything for a purpose because everything is ultimately for Him, for His glory. And because we are creatures, right? Because God created us, that should give us a purpose. We should know that we were created through Christ, we were created by Christ, and we were created for Him. Have you ever wondered? Wonder why is it that nothing else will truly, fully satisfy you other than Christ? Have you ever wondered why is it that you can dedicate your life to, to your craft, to, to politics, to anything that you want, but no one will, nothing will truly satisfy you? The only one that can satisfy us is Christ because we were created for Him. We were created for His glory. We were created to desire Him, to want Him, to be with Him. And so the only thing that will really fill that void in our hearts is Him, because we were created for Him. Verse 17, He is before all things. And once again, I don't think, I mean, this could be talking chronologically, and and it would make perfect sense in that He has always existed. He is before all things. But I think uh, if, if you look at all of the phrases in, in this song, in this passage, it seems very clear that Paul's purpose is to show that Christ is preeminent, that he is the most important, that he is number one. And so this phrase could actually be translated as he is number one. He is the first one of all things. He has the highest authority of all things. He is the, the, the one ranking above everything else. And then he says, and in him, all things hold together. Some people believe that when God created the world, he created it and then kind of like a, like a clock, he just wound it up and let it work on its own and kind of, you know, just forgot about it. He left it on automatic. But what this passage is saying that is that Jesus holds everything together. Not only did he create the whole world and the universe and everything that is visible and invisible, but he is holding everything together. If you could picture him, of course, this is not complete, not accurate at all, but if you could picture him holding the world with his hand, what would happen if, again, this is madness, but what would happen if he were to take a nap? and his hand were kind of to fall, well, the universe would collapse. Or what would happen if he decided to stop holding things together? The universe would collapse. And as frightful as that is, it is also very hopeful to know that everything is in the hands of God. That the universe is held together by his power. That nothing can happen outside of his control. And that should be comforting to us because even though sometimes things look scary or, or look like they are um, bad for us, we remember in Romans 8.28 that it says that all things work for the good of those who love him. So he holds everything together. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. 
So Christ, who is number one, the, the heir, the, the ruler of all creation. Christ, who is the creator of all things. Christ, who has preeminence in everything. He also has preeminence in the church. He is the head of the body, the church. You've probably heard me give this illustration multiple times, but please bear with me uh, one more time. When I was in, in a Bible Institute in Mexico, before I went to Bible College uh, in Iowa, um, one of my professors who was talking about church leadership, he was very convinced that a church should have only one pastor. And at the time, I didn't know a whole lot, but I kind of just because of the church that I grew up in, I, I, knew, I, I was convinced that a church should have, you know, multiple leaders, or at least that it wasn't wrong for a church to have multiple leaders or multiple elders. But one of the arguments that this guy gave was that uh, a body with many heads is a monster. And so at the time, I didn't have the arguments or, or you know, anything to respond back. But a few years later, I, I was thinking about it and I said, hey, you know, he was right in the sense that, yes, a church with multiple heads is a, a monster or a body with multiple heads. But he was wrong in thinking that the pastor is the head of the church. Because clearly Christ is the head of the church. The pastor or the pastors, the elders, the leaders, we are not the head of the church. We are under shepherds. We serve under Christ, who is the head of the church. And therefore, it means that his will for the church is the only right will. It means that his purposes and his commands for the church are the only right ones. It means that when we leaders are, are trying to lead the church, we don't do it as... Uh, independent contractors or, or, or we, you know, we do whatever we want. We're our own bosses. No. We have to respond to Christ because he is the head of the church. And therefore, anyone, not just the leaders, but anyone who, is, who really wants to, uh, uh, to be a part of the church, anyone who wants to um, submit themselves to Christ, or to the church, they have to submit themselves to Christ because it is ultimately his will that is the, 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 the right will for the church. And I think that um, this is helpful to remember. This is really good to remember because sometimes we, we think that we know better than Christ. Sometimes when we think about the church, we think that, that the way that we think about the church is better than Christ. Obviously, we wouldn't say it like that. But when we question some of the commands that Jesus has given about the church, when we question some of the things that he has instituted, we are basically questioning his authority, his headship. But I think we need faith and we need trust in him to know that if he is the head of the body, the church, he knows what he's doing. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
he is the beginning, or it could also be translated, he is the authority, he is the ruler. The Greek word is arche, he is the, the ruler. And then he is the firstborn from the dead. So now in this case, I do believe that the word firstborn could actually mean chronologically. He is the firstborn, he was the firstborn to be resurrected. And you would say, well, but what about Lazarus? Wasn't he resurrected first? Or what about the, the, you know, the little, was it a girl or a boy that was resurrected by uh, Elijah in the Old Testament? And, you know, you can name some of the people that were resurrected. But the thing is, those people were resurrected only to die again. Right? I, I'm, I'm sure that we will see them in, in the kingdom. I'm sure that we will get a chance to talk to Lazarus and to that little uh, boy or girl. I cannot remember what it was. Um, but Jesus was the first one to be resurrected, never to die again. He was the, the first one and the only one who conquered death. He was the only one who defeated death by his own merits. But the good news that he is the firstborn is that he's not the last one. He's not the last one to be resurrected. Those of us, his brothers, his sisters, we will follow. Those who have died in Christ, right? Remember in Revelation, we have talked about the martyrs, those who, who died for their witness to the gospel and to the Lamb. All of us, we have the hope that if Christ our Lord defeated death and he was the firstborn from the dead, then we have the hope of the resurrection. That we know that we will live. Even if we die in this world, we know that we will live with him. And that's one of, the, one, one of the biggest hopes that we have as believers. That we, well, that our Lord has defeated death and therefore we have no fear of death. That in everything he might be preeminent. So I think that's where Paul makes his point as clear as, as water. He's saying the point in all of this is that Jesus would be the first in everything. That doesn't sound to me like Mormon or Jehovah Witness theology where Jesus is secondary, where he is, yeah, you know, he was good enough that he became God or, or you know, he was 50-50. No, he is preeminent. He is the one that we worship. I mean, the whole reason why we're called Christians is because of Christ. It's because of Jesus. He is our Lord and Savior. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, this passage is, this verse is a, is a little more complicated. Um, but here are a couple of things that I gather from it. Remember in, uh, just think about the words dwell. This is, this is a word that we can Trace throughout the history of redemption, throughout this, the story of the Bible, and think about think of it as God's presence, right? God's presence dwelled with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and they and then eventually Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, and then God's presence, even though He didn't dwell in those places, but God's presence was revealed to some of the patriarchs, like uh, like uh, Abraham and Jacob. In fact, uh, Jacob. 
when he had his vision, he named the place the house of God, right? Because God was there, was in that place. And then when we talk about the tabernacle, it says that God's presence dwelled in the tabernacle. In other words, God chose to put his presence in that tent. And then when they were going through the desert, God's presence was leading them through the cloud of fire and the cloud of smoke, or the column of fire, the cloud of smoke. And then once they made it to the promised land and they built the temple, God's presence actually left the tabernacle and started dwelling the temple. And then what do we see when Jesus becomes flesh? We read again in John, we read that the word became flesh and he dwelled among us. Jesus, and, and, and the word that is used there for dwell is actually the word to tabernacle. So in other words, it's saying that Jesus became flesh and he tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. And so I think that one of the aspects of this verse is that God's presence is there in the person of Jesus. When Jesus is there, the full presence of God is there. Now, another aspect of it, it is possible that the Colossians were struggling with a heresy that would teach that Jesus was not fully God. It was likely that they were that that some people were trying to teach the Colossians that Jesus was only partially God or that Jesus was a human that God decided to to partially indwell and it is possible that Paul is trying to to counter this doctrine by teaching no Jesus is 100% God Jesus is fully God and so you know those those are some uh some insights in this verse, but again, I, I acknowledge that this verse is a little bit more complicated. Now, uh, verse 20, and through him to reconcile. So remember, for in, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and it was also pleased that through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In this starts talking about God's plan for creation. God's plan for creation is to reconcile to himself all things, is to make peace between him and all things. Since Adam and Eve fell, there has been hostility. God's creation has been, some of it has been against him. Humanity has been against him. But God's plan has always been to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. One of the things that I really love about this is that God's plan is not just to redeem humanity and ditch the rest. But rather, God's plan is to reconcile all things, whether on earth and in heaven. And that speaks to me of a God that is actively redeeming this world. 
And we see that in the book of Revelation, right? In the book of Revelation, we see how God is reconciling all things to himself and how in the end, the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven to earth, right? It's not that this earth is just going to disappear and be completely destroyed. I do think it's going to be purified and I do think that it's going to suffer a lot of changes. But the language seems to indicate that the ultimate purpose of God is to reconcile his creation, not ditch his creation. To redeem his creation, not ditch his creation. And all of this is accomplished by the blood of the cross of Jesus. So think about that for a minute. The blood of Christ has power to redeem us. And we already know that, right? That's something that we we emphasize often. But the blood of Jesus also has power to reconcile all of creation to God. Verse 21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So now he's talking to the Colossians. And he's saying, this this God, this amazing and beautiful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, even though you were his enemies, he has reconciled in his body. He has reconciled you in his body by his death. And this should completely amaze us. Number one, recognizing that we were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. There's not a single person in this world that can claim that they've always been a friend of God. Even if you grew up in a Christian family, I, I, I realize that this could be a struggle, right? If you grew up in a Christian family where you were taught the gospel from an early age and you, you were raised with the Bible, sometimes you can think, hey, you know, I've always believed the gospel. Like, I, I do not see myself as an enemy of God. But what the Bible clearly teaches is that there's only two kinds of people. Those who are his enemies, those who are hostile to him, those who do evil deeds, and those who have been reconciled by him. And so even though you might be uh, young and you might be a part of a Christian family, I think that you need to examine your heart and say, well, my parents are, have been reconciled to God, but what about me? Am I still his enemy? And even if you're not young, even if you're uh, older, even if you're an adult, I think you have to ask yourself the same question. I'm either reconciled by the blood of Jesus, or I am still his enemy. Or I am still alienated from him. Or I am still hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And notice that the solution is not, oh, well, I'm going to unalienate myself. I'm going to become his friend. I'm going to do good things. No. The solution is reconciliation in the body of Christ by his death. The only thing that can save us from our enmity with God is the blood of Jesus. It's the sacrifice of Jesus.
Now this, this is not just so that we could live happily ever after and do whatever we want. There is a purpose. The purpose is in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The purpose of our reconciliation to God is so that we would live, well, not, yes, that, but first of all, so that Jesus would present us to God, holy, blameless, above reproach. And that is extremely good news because if you grow up in a Christian family or if you've been around the church for a while, you've probably heard salvation is by faith and by God's grace, but sanctification, you got to work for that. That's your own thing. God saves you and you have to sanctify yourself. Maybe not as radical, but you've probably heard something like that. Um, I think we need to remember that ultimately Christ is the one who is presenting us. Or in the, in, in the words of uh, Ephesians 5, when he's talking about husbands and wives, he says uh, in, in chapter 5, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So notice that it is Christ who is doing the purifying. It is Christ who is presenting for himself a perfect bride. Jesus is the one who is doing the work of presenting us holy, blameless, and without blemish. Now, it doesn't mean that we just, you know, sit back and relax and, and say, Jesus, take the wheel, do your own thing. No, we work hard, right? In the words of, of John in 1 John, it, since we know that when he comes, we will become like he is, everyone who has this hope purifies himself. So yes, of course, we work for our sanctification. Of course, we work to purify ourselves. We work to uh, battle against sin. But if we do it in our own strength, we will never succeed. But if we know that ultimately it is the work of Christ, he is the one who is presenting us to God as holy, as blameless, as uh, uh, above reproach, then we can recognize that it is by His grace that we are being sanctified. Now, it also doesn't mean that we're going to become holy, blameless, and above reproach in this life. Yes, I think we are going to be growing, but I think that we will become ultimately holy, blameless, and above reproach when we received our glorified bodies, when we are finally resurrected along with Jesus, in the same way that Jesus was resurrected. Now, verse 23, this verse might make some people uncomfortable, but verse 23 includes a condition. It says, If indeed 
you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So there's a condition right there. Basically, the condition is these things will happen if you continue in the faith. Now, the reason why I think it makes people uncomfortable is because, again, some of us have been raised thinking, well, yeah, salvation is by faith. And once I am saved, I can never lose my salvation. And, and uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what, what happens. I know that, you know, because I wrote in the back of my Bible, I know that I will never lose my salvation. Now, don't get me wrong. I do not believe that you can lose your salvation. I do not believe that Christ will let you go off of his hand. But I do believe that if you do not continue in the faith, that if you do not continue steadfast and not shifting from the hope, then that is showing that you were never his on the first place. That is showing that you do not belong to him, that maybe you just thought that you belonged to him but that you really don't know what it means to be reconciled to him because you are continuing in your sin. Not that if you sin, you know, not that if you sin, then you do not belong to him. We all sin. But if you continue in your sin, if you continue in your hostility against him, then you are simply showing that you do not understand what it means to be reconciled. You are simply showing that you have not been reconciled to him. You are still his enemy. Now, another aspect of this is that if we want to continue in this, the key is being stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. I've said this multiple times, but I'll say it again. We never graduate from the gospel. The gospel is something that we need all the time. It's not just your, your entry ticket into heaven. It's something that we have to dwell in. It's something that we have to uh, continue, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. If you fall into sin, go to the hope of the gospel. If you try to, to um, amend for your own sin with your works, with good works and all of that, you are not trusting in the grace of Jesus. If you are struggling, if you are questioning your faith, go to the hope of the gospel. This gospel that uh, has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This gospel is our hope. The gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for us. The gospel of Jesus being nailed to the cross instead of us. You and I deserve to be on that cross. You and I deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath. But Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself so that we wouldn't have to. And that's why it says that we are reconciled to God by 
his blood, in his body of flesh. And that's why we celebrate communion. That's why we do this every week. Because we are remembering his body of flesh and because we are remembering his blood that was shed for us. And that's also why we say sometimes, not all the times, but I think we should say it more often, that if you are not a believer in Christ, if you are still hostile and alienated, then you should abstain from this because it doesn't mean anything to you. But if you are walking faithfully, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, then you are more than welcome to come here and remember his sacrifice for you and proclaim his death, his salvific death, until he comes.